All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick in order to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Hi, this is Nick Freitas with Making the Argument. We've got something special and a little bit different for you here today. We're gonna do a React video. So my producer Hamilton keeps coming to me and going, Nick, you gotta watch this video by Johnny Harris. So Johnny Harris, um, formerly a journalist over at Vox and he's a big YouTuber, over two million subscribers. And I gotta say, the production value of the videos he does is very good. They're, they're, they're well thought out. The imagery is great. I mean, he does a really good job. Now, he is definitely left of center. At least that's the impression I get from, from watching some of the programs he does. Um, but he, he still tries to do a good and civil job of discussing his issues. What I find frustrating is a lot of times I watch these and I think to myself, okay, I get it. I can appreciate the time and effort you put into this, but I think there's some fundamental flaws in your argumentation. And so Hamilton said, look, watch this one. Take a look at it. Let's, you know, let, let's see what we think. What is our response? What is the conservative response to some of the issues that they're bringing up? Because the title of this one is pretty interesting. So again, coming from Johnny Harris, left to center, and he's, the title of this video is "Liberal Hypocrisy Is Fueling American Inequality." Here's how. So that's what we're going to watch today. We're going to watch this video. You're going to be able to see it too. I'm going to pause intermittently and uh, react to some of the things that they're bringing up, some of the, the policy prescriptions they seem to be suggesting. And again, hopefully this will be enjoyable for all involved. So let's go ahead and get started. There is a question I've had for a very long time, and it has to do with this map. This is a map of the 18 states in the US where Democrats control the legislative and executive branches or else have some veto-proof majority in the legislature. Democrats in DC often blame the GOP for foiling their progressive vision. When middle-class families see their taxes go up, they'll know Republicans are to blame. But if you zoom into these 18 states, there's effectively no Republicans standing in the way. So I think that's interesting, and I love this because this is intellectually honest, right? It's this whole idea that if you are the one wielding political power, then it's, it's fair to assume that you should be able to execute the things that you want to do. Like, you know, in Virginia, we have this case where we just won an election cycle. We've, we've got the governor back for the first time in, gosh, like you know, two terms. We've got, um, you know, the generalists, we've got the House of Delegates back, but we still have a Democrat-controlled Senate, right? And so there's still going to be some, some hiccups with respect to what we can actually pass through that barrier. So he's actually making a clear distinction between those states which have split legislatures and those states where you not only have one party rule over the legislature, which is to say the House and the Senate, but you actually have 
one-party rule over the executive branch as well, which means that not only can you get the bills through the legislature, but you can actually sign it into law. And that's really, really where the rubber meets the road on being able to implement your policy. So I, I, I think he's setting this up with a, a fair question. So my question is, what do Democrats actually do when they have all the power? To answer this question, I teamed up with the Times editorial board writer, Binya Applebaum. Okay, you got my attention. He's been thinking about and writing books about and reporting on this topic for decades. I think, you know, Americans tend to view politics as a competition of us versus them. And, and they tend to think that if they would just get out of the way, then we can do the things that we want to do. There is no them standing in the way. There's just the we of Democrats and their supporters, and they get to decide what policy should look like in those states. And that is an opportunity for them to implement their vision. For this story, I also delved into this giant document. It is the 2020 Democratic Party platform. All right, this is another thing I respect about what he's doing here, because he's not taking some outlandish statement by an individual representative of a particular group, right? And he, he's actually going into the party platform. And, and it's reasonable to assume that if you're pulling information from a party platform, then there's, a, again, there's an expectation that if that party is in control, these are the things that they will try to achieve. All right, so again, I, th I think he's doing a pretty fair job of, of balancing what, he, what he's saying here. If you wanna really understand what Democrats say they want, what their vision is for America, it's found inside of this document. This document serves as a guide. As we zoom into these states to answer this question, what do Democrats really do when they have all the power? Nearly 554,000 homeless people from the 25 wealthiest Americans shows they're paying little in income taxes compared to their fortunes, sometimes nothing at all. We cannot, in good faith, blame the Republican Party when House Democrats have a majority. There's still very intense segregation happening in all kinds of forms all over this country. Okay, so let's start with California. To me, California is like the quintessential liberal state. From the state legislature to the whole executive branch to most of the big cities, Dems hold majority control. So what do they do with all this power? Looking at California, you have to look at housing. Okay, now wait, listen. When I hear the words housing policy, I tend to sort of doze off, but Binya insists that housing policy and what is happening in California is definitely worth looking at. You cannot say that you are against inequality in America unless you are willing to have affordable housing built in your neighborhood. And Democrats can... Okay, well, I want to say something here that I think is pretty... that's interesting, right? And this, this again, starts to show some of the, the fundamental difference in the way that a lot of times I think conservatives and people on the left think. So the statement he made was is that, you know, you cannot talk about equality in housing or equity in housing unless you're willing to have affordable housing built in your neighborhood. And, and that's interesting because that's, that's kind of a, a broad spectrum argument, all right? What, what do you mean by affordable housing? And what sort of conditions do you think create the ability for people to be able to own property within a particular area? So like, for instance, if you go out and you, know, you, you buy a piece of property where everybody in that property has you know, five acres and you know, you've set it up in a certain way, or you buy a piece of property in an area where it's more agricultural, 
If you're against an apartment complex moving in right next door, does that mean that you're automatically against the concept of affordable housing? Or does that mean you're automatically against the concept of people being able to try to buy? I don't think so. So I, I think, again, he's not being very careful with his argumentation here, right? There can be legitimate reasons why you might not want a particular housing project within, a, within you know, your area, right? It's not just greed or selfishness or NIMBY or not in my backyard, right? But I just, I think that's interesting and worth pointing out. Completely agree here in this document. The word housing is mentioned over a hundred times. The neighborhood where you're born has a huge influence on the rest of your life. Children who are born in neighborhoods with degraded environmental conditions, with a lack of access to high quality public services, poor schools, poor public transit, are at a permanent disadvantage. And they even say verbatim, housing. Okay, real quick, he says something here that I think is interesting, and that's the whole idea of a permanent disadvantage. And, and again, I, I think that what, what he's chalking this up to is that if you're born into an impoverished area, if you're born into an area um, that, again, doesn't have access to the same services that a wealthier area might have, again, what he said was at a permanent disadvantage. And that's interesting because it begs the question, then, then why is it that you have um, you know, you know, people that, that actually rise up and succeed within these particular areas. And then when you actually look at those areas, should we treat everybody that lives within those circumstances, the, the, um, should, should we judge everything the exact same, which is to say that, um, you know, one person living in that area with a two-parent home where, you know, parents are working hard and they have time and they work with their kids, uh, you know, on their school homework. Do we really, are we really willing to say that that child is going to do the same as a child that doesn't have those same circumstances within the same, you know, potentially poor neighborhood? And I think the answer is no. And so, whereas I, I certainly understand and can respect that if you're born into an area where you might not have access to some of the same services, you know, you, th that, that that can convey a disadvantage. The idea that it is permanent in nature, right? Or, or the idea that that is the, you know, single most important factor determining your future success, that's something that, again, they're, they're going to have to prove if they want to continue with that line of thinking. Uh, but he's absolutely correct in assuming that this is the way many people within the Democratic Party seem to think about these issues, right? Whether or not you're going to succeed or fail is, is based far less upon your own individual you know, mindset or attitude or your family life. It, it's based more on your access to public services, right? So again, there, there's somewhat of a... While, there, while there's no disagreement that access to services can be beneficial, there does seem to be a disagreement with respect to what plays the largest impact in a, in a person's future success and ability to succeed. But again, he, he's absolutely correct that just about every Democrat I know would agree with that particular statement. And so it, it's somewhat troubling to find that you know, their, their policies don't seem to achieve the end states that they, they prefer. In America should be stable, accessible, safe, healthy, energy efficient, and above all, affordable. Housing is a human right. Housing is a human right. The rent is going through the roof. Housing is a human right. How does California... Okay, I, I want to stop right here because again, we've had this conversation before and I, I think it is another demonstration of a fundamental difference between the way the left and the right looks at these issues. So first of all, if, if you think that housing should be or that there should exist affordable housing, safe housing, clean housing, they, they even listen to energy efficient housing. Yes, I don't, I don't think anybody disagrees that we want that sort of housing and we want that housing ultimately to be affordable to people at large, right? We don't want it to be the purview of only the wealthy to be able to own the sort of house that we just described. The question is, is how do you get there? And one of the things that I find a little bit disturbing about this overall argument is this idea that housing is a human right, right? Because I've discussed this before on other issues. 
you cannot have an inherent, or what we sometimes refer to as a natural right, which is pretty synonymous with human rights, to the products or services of another person. The products, uh, services, property, talents, creativity of another person. Right, because the, the moment you suggest that that's a right, then anytime somebody is not giving you something that you want, then they're denying you your rights. And, and you, create this, you create this sort of philosophical dynamic where anytime somebody doesn't have something, even if it's not the fault of anybody else, that somehow they've been denied their rights. Sometimes they have been, somehow they have been guilty of an injustice, even though somebody else hasn't acted in such a way to deprive them of something. So it's, it's important to distinguish between this concept of negative rights which, which those of us on, on the right or the liberty movement tend to associate ourselves with, and this idea of positive rights where essentially you can declare any sort of commodity or service a right, and, and it clouds the entire debate because then we start to get into this discussion of, okay, well, I, I can say you have a right to a Ferrari, all right, but someone still has to create that Ferrari for it even to exist for you to even have a right to it, right? So it, it doesn't quite work philosophically and it ends up confusing the overall debate. But once again, they're coming from the perspective of Democrats are saying that housing is a human right. So presumably, any sort of policy or any sort of conditions that they create that results in someone not having access to a house, that means those people are denying them their human rights. So I think it's really important to, to point this part out. This is, this is fundamental. This is huge. Because if you're going to get up on a stage and say housing is a human right, then you're going to implement policies which result in people not having housing, then you're the one denying them their rights at that point. You've taken the responsibility for that action and you're not delivering. California do when it comes to housing. You know where those signs are when you drive into a state that says, welcome to California? They might as well replace them with signs that say, keep out. Because in California, the cost of housing is so high that for many people, it's simply unaffordable. The, the state has simply, for the most part, stopped building housing. I mean, there are cranes, there's housing going up, but it has slowed down over time really, really sharply, and it is nowhere near sufficient to keep pace with California's population. And so what you have is, is not enough housing and too many people trying to get it, and the inevitable result is that prices have gone up, up, and away. The median price. Okay, one thing I'd like to point out here that I actually really appreciate about this is its respect for the general concept of supply and demand. All right, if, if you have huge demand for something, a commodity, a service, doesn't matter what it is, and you have low supply, then prices are going to go up. Now, what typically happens, because he made the statement that, you know, basically the state isn't building anymore, and I think what he means by that is that builders are not building housing projects within the state of California. Typically, when prices go up, what happens is supply goes up in order to meet that demand, because now it becomes profitable to build those houses. So the question that we have to ask ourselves going into this next segment is, is that if there is huge demand for housing, Right? And prices have gone up significantly to build housing. Why aren't people building more? Right? That this doesn't seem to make sense. Pretty much everywhere else in the economy where we see a drastic increase in, in, the, in the price of something with respect to like a finished product like a house, you see people rushing to build more of them because they can make more money in order to build it. And yet we're not seeing that in California. So that begs the question, why is that? A home in San Diego County is now a staggering $830,000. All around California, there are cities full of people who say that they are progressive. They're liberals. They believe in a more equal America, a more diverse America. They show up to the marches. They put in the lawn signs about everyone being equal. But at the same time, they're actively fighting to keep their neighborhoods looking like this. 
Okay, wait, but that doesn't look so bad. It's just a bunch of houses in a neighborhood, right? No, it turns out that this is actually the result of specific policies, intentional policies that keeps these neighborhoods spread out and full of single family homes, as opposed to higher density buildings like duplexes or apartment complexes. This is a real serious fight and you can get a glimpse into it by looking at a zoning map. Yes, we're looking at a municipal zoning map of Palo Alto, California. Don't leave yet, this is really where it sinks in, so just stick around. So everything on this map that is yellow is zoned for single family homes, like this and this. One family can live here. But here in Palo Alto, there are a lot of new jobs. This is a desirable place to live for new opportunities. Over the past eight years, the San Francisco area has added 676,000 jobs, but only 176,000 housing units. So a few years ago, the city council voted to change the zoning of one section of the city right here. Specifically, this two-acre plot of land. They wanted to change it from low-density housing to higher-density housing so that they could build a 60-unit affordable housing complex for elderly members of the community. Okay, so they changed the zoning. Start building the 60-unit complex. No, the overwhelmingly liberal residents of Palo Alto decided to hold a vote to overturn the decision to revert it back to low-density single-family housing. Back to yellow. Okay, this, this is this is interesting here because, again, I think I think they're bringing up a good point. I'm willing to bet that most of these people, if you ask them about affordable housing, if you ask them about the housing crisis in California, if you ask them about poor being able to live in, in a house that meets all those criteria mentioned in the Democratic platform, they probably say absolutely. The question is, is once it's moving in next door to them, and again, this is a very specific one where we're actually talking about you know higher density housing for like an, an elderly community, then they don't want it, and. That's where that's where I think the rubber meets the road, and I and I I think this is something that we're, probably, we're this is something we're going to be talking about throughout this video, is that it is really easy to talk about objectives. It is something entirely different when the policies take effect. The rubber meets the road, and now it affects you personally, because everyone is still offering off of some degree of self-interest. And, and keep in mind, I'm making a distinction between self-interest and selfishness. Selfishness is when you're, you're, just, you're out for yourself regardless of how it affects everybody else. Self-interest is absolutely necessary for you, know, you to get up in the morning, you know, bathe and feed yourself, right? Self-interest is not a bad thing in and of itself until it becomes selfishness. But it, it's interesting to see how these guys are, are breaking this down, all right? So let's watch the rest. And it passed and the zoning was overturned. So now when you go to this plot of land, instead of an affordable housing complex for the elderly, what you're gonna see is this. A row of just a few houses, all of them massive and worth around $5 million each. I think people aren't living their value. There's another thing I want to bring out here real quick that I, that I think is interesting. They, they brought up that there was a vote, all right? So it wasn't just the, the city council approving this rezoning. Um, they, they actually put it as a referendum. They put it as a vote to the people to be able to decide. Now, I've had a lot of conversations with, with friends of mine who are Democrats or left of center, colleagues, and, and they all elevate this idea of democracy as being like one of the highest forms of of community and, and human interaction. And what I think was interesting is that, okay, well, this was a democratic vote and they said no. And one of the things, again, I find interesting in a lot of Democrat arguments about a particular issue is their argument will be, well, the people want this. And so they voted. And then, and the fact that the majority has spoken 
somehow makes it a morally superior decision in and of itself. Right now, I'm not saying they make this as an absolute argument, but it comes up a lot, right? And it kind of selectively comes up. And this is another area where I feel like it selectively comes up, right? This idea that, you know, democracy, that's, that's the number one thing. And then people democratically elected, liberals democratically elected to say no to this project. But something tells me they're not going to conclude that therefore that makes it a morally superior decision. You go to these meetings in these neighborhoods where they're talking about a new housing project and it's always the same song. And now, real quick, he says they're not living their values. Here's the question I would pose. Are they not living their values or are they not living their stated values? Are they not living their very public-facing values? Are they not living the values that they claim to care about when they walk into a voting booth? Or do they think that simply voting a certain way is a significant representation of their values? One of the things I think it's important to understand here is that people tend to live their values. They don't always vote that way, especially if it gives them some air of moral superiority by voting one way, even though when the rubber meets the road, they're going to live differently. It goes like this. I am very in favor of affordable housing. We need more of it in this community. However, I have some concerns about this project. We have the hearts to do this, but we're doing it wrong and we're dictating and harm onto the neighborhoods. And then off we go with the concerns and then nothing ever gets built. This is happening all over California. And the result is that these neighborhoods are so expensive that they keep anyone out who isn't a part of this small group of super rich residents, many of whom bought their properties decades ago and who spend their time fighting vigorously to keep the value of their real estate assets super high. If you want to keep Palo Alto the kind of neighborhood and community that we all treasure, low intensity, low density, safe for kids to walk to school, you've got to vote against Measure D. There's a, an aspect of sort of, of greed here and, and of uh, you know, nervousness about actually sharing those. Okay, there's an aspect of greed here. That is, so what he's saying is that these, these liberals that say they believe in one thing but then don't want you know, high density housing or whatever it might be in their particular neighborhoods. Um, and that the one uh, member, I, I'm assuming he's a member of the council, one I think Mr. Moss that was talking about if we still want, you know, the sort of community that we love in Palo Alto, low density, where kids can walk to their schools safely, then you got to vote against this. Again, you know, the New York Times editor is, is, is chalking this up to, or opinion editor um, is chalking this up to greed. Well, okay, greed is a potential way to explain this. It's not the only way to explain it, but it's certainly the easiest way to explain it if you want to suggest that your opponent is the bad guy, is morally deficient with respect to what their concerns are. Opportunities. Let's go to another liberal bastion up here in Washington state. The Democratic Party talks about taxation, saying that our tax code has been, quote, rigged against the American people. Democrats all the time are decrying the fact that tax cuts are going to the wealthiest Americans. It is time for a wealth tax in America. Democrats believe in a progressive tax system where the rich pay a larger share of their income than the poor. This is like the most basic policy vision of like a progressive movement. It's front and center in Democrats' policy platform. But if you go and look at Washington state, what you find is that in Washington state, if you look at the, the state and local taxes that people pay there, less affluent families pay a much larger share of their income in tax. So what I think is interesting in this is they're, they're talking about the difference between, and, and you know, they'll, they'll talk a little bit more about this, but it's the, let me see, the total state and local taxes in Washington, share of family income. 
So that's what they're breaking down here. And it's important to understand the appropriate context for some of the other things that are coming up. Right, so this is the this is the share of their income that they're paying in taxes. It doesn't mean that they're um, it doesn't mean that they're paying more actual dollars into you know government revenues. It's that it's a higher percentage of their individual income. All right, and there's some reasons for this that I think that are important to point out. But here you go. Taxes than the wealthiest residents of Washington State. So people like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, two of the state's most famous and wealthy residents, are in this lovely situation of of paying less in taxes as a share of their income than, than the poor people who live in that same state. And this is a fundamental inversion of the values that the Democratic Party professes. There is no state with a more regressive system of taxation than Washington state. And I'm talking like the most regressive, meaning Texas, which is like the conservative bastion of like anti-taxes, is more progressive than Washington state, liberal Washington state. How is that real? Oh, and guess what? Other states on our map also are in the top 10 of most regressive tax regimes like Nevada and Illinois. There have been some changes, particularly in recent years, but the overall situation remains resistant to change. So I'm very concerned that at this time, which is a very poor time to disincent people from creating jobs in Washington state, that we're even considering it. From that paycheck that you earn, more of- So here, here's what I think is interesting about this. And I, 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 can always, I can always tell that we're cooking the books a little bit when we talk about taxes uh, in a very specific way, like things like just share of income, or we're talking about just state taxes. Now, I think it's totally fair for them to bring it up because what they're essential, what they seem to be advocating for, is that if Washington State was really living out their values, then what they would do is that they would drastically shift that dynamic to where wealthier people were paying a much higher tax. Now, typically, what you would have to do in order to get away with that is that you would have to take a look at how much those residents are paying in federal taxes. You would have to look at the sort of taxes that you were implementing versus sale or income or capital gains or inheritance or things like that if you wanted to shift that dynamic. But that guy that got up and said, why would you disincent people from creating jobs is, is basically implying that if you're raising taxes in such a way, especially on those entities which are most likely to create jobs within your environment, then they're more likely to go somewhere else. And so it, it's this idea that, no, there, there is a counter argument here on, on why, um, you know, a, a so-called or, or why the, the tax schemes that they're advocating for might not actually produce better overall results. That money is going to state government. And so the effect of that is basically to exacerbate inequality. OK, so rich liberals don't show up when it comes to housing or taxes. Another major theme in this policy document is education. And the wording in here I find quite interesting. The Democrats say, quote, we must provide world-class education in every zip code to every child because education is a critical public good. They use this word zip code to represent the fact that in America, schools get their funding based on the real estate taxes of the houses within that school district. The more expensive the neighborhood, the more funding goes to the school. So over here in Illinois, which is like the quintessential liberal state, there's this one county that contains the city of Chicago. It's called Cook County. The residents here voted overwhelmingly for Democratic candidates in the presidential and senatorial elections last year. Often what would happen is that this would just be one big school district and that all the taxes from all the towns in this county would be put into one. Okay, so he's saying that because Cook County is one county that it would normally be one overall school district. 
that might be true, that might not be true. It's important to understand something here, all right? I, I think a lot of us will look at, you know, even sizable counties, and, and it's typically one, one school district within the county. It doesn't necessarily have to be that way. But when you're talking about Cook County, you're talking about, like, one of the top, I think, three most populous counties in the country. I mean, it's huge. Like, we're talking about millions upon millions of people in this county. So uh, understand when he's just saying, oh, Cook County, just like, you know, you know where I live, Culpeper County. Culpeper County has 50,000 people, right? So... Again, just because it is often that way doesn't mean it always has to be that way. ...and distributed equally throughout the county. But the residents of this very blue Democratic county have actually decided to divide themselves into more than 140 school districts. So now you have all these tiny school districts like this one, which are like gerrymandered around the richest part of town. And so all of the taxes from these rich homeowners go into one little bucket and then only get distributed to the schools within this rich region of the county. It can be on the same block that the town line runs through the middle of it. And if you live on one side of that line, you're consigned to an inferior education by virtue of the fact that you and your neighbors don't have as much money. And if you live on the other side, you're basically a member of a club that is sponsoring a private school, essentially, for the benefit of that small group of kids who are lucky. Okay, a club that is sponsoring a private school, essentially. No, not essentially. I mean, that's not what's going on. I, I understand where he's coming from. It's this idea that, again, if you believe in, in you know, they call it equity, but really what it is more is more like equality of distribution or equality of outcomes. Well, then, yeah, this is this is a real problem. But let's not let's not confuse the difference between a private school and a public school. Uh, but but essentially, and he's correct that this is what Democrats say. But when they have the opportunity to do it in an area they control, they choose something else. Enough to live in that affluent community, and the result is that. Poor communities have less money to educate their children, and rich communities have more money to educate their children. This is crazy. It means basically that the kids who have the greatest needs have the fewest resources. The same thing is happening in wealthy. I, I have a question on this too. Why is it, I mean, I, I'm looking at this and, I, and I, I'm seeing what their platform states, and I obviously I disagree with the way that the Democrats approach education. But they have a platform in stating this is what we believe in education. We believe in the equitable distribution of funds in order to support public education. But then when they have an opportunity to do it in a place like Cook County, they choose something different. My question is, is at what point is there going to be any sort of introspection on this and saying, okay, wait a second. Instead of having the government monopolize this process and monopolize these school districts, why don't, why don't we allow for, for greater you know, freedom and uh, you know, opportunity with, within, this, within this system? But instead, it's always, well, no, okay, what's, what's the better centralized government approach? Liberal Connecticut, where the inequality in education opportunities is shameful, with some schools having huge budgets for their libraries and facilities, and others in the same state having to use duct tape to keep wind and snow out of their windows. Like, this is a real thing. We need your help in establishing guidelines, procedures, and funding to address issues negatively impacting our students, like extreme temperatures, mold, lead exposure, and poor water and air quality. So yeah, Binya tells me that the states could change this. They could actually just collect all the real estate taxes and then equally distribute them. But if you look at some of our liberal strongholds, that is exactly what they are not doing. Let me be clear. Well, and again, I, I think the, <laughs> the idea is we have this massive government bureaucracy, which in their opinion is inappropriately distributing tax revenues 
toward educational institutions run by the government. So again, at, at what point are we, we questioning your fundamental approach to this? Because I'm, I'm willing to bet that if dollars were following students, the actual customers for education would be making very, very different decisions. But, but instead, the hope is, is that if we just do a better job of evenly distributing the money, well, then all the schools will come up to a particular standard. That means some schools will actually drop and other schools will actually increase. And then we're achieving some sort of equilibrium, which is not established by parents. It's not established by students. It's not even established by teachers. It's just established by politicians. Like at, at any point, are they going to question that, that, that reasoning? about something. In blue states, progress is being made, albeit slowly. For instance, a few weeks ago, California finally passed a law that gets rid of single-family zoning. It's a small step in the right direction. And in many cases, blue states provide more and better public service. So he says there's a law in California which, which passes single-family zoning, which is presumably it would be a law that tells localities that you cannot pass a zoning law that only allows for single family uh, housings. What I, what, again, what I kind of find interesting about this entire approach is that it, it's this idea that a step in the right direction is the implementation of more progressive policies. Now, what has already been demonstrated throughout a lot of this is that when people have the ability to have greater choices, they, they choose different things than what progressives expect them to choose. And again, where's the introspection? Where is the question of this idea that, you know what, maybe, maybe this concept of relying upon the government to figure this all out for us is actually the wrong approach, right? I, I don't see that ever being, there, like there's no question to the fundamentals of, of this entire discussion. It's just a question of, well, these guys are not implementing our policies to the full extent that we would like them to. And, and so we need more government power to ensure that they do it the way that we want them to. And historically have given better chances to low-income families to climb the economic ladder. But for some of these foundational democratic values of housing equality, progressive taxation, and education equality, Democrats don't actually embody their values very well. We're talking, once again, about a system that's been rigged. Republicans today are to blame. What we're talking about here is that blue states are the problem. Blue states are where the housing crisis is located. Blue states are where the disparities in education funding are the most dramatic. Blue states are the places where tens of thousands of homeless people are living on the streets. Blue states are the places where economic inequality is increasing most quickly in this country. This is not a problem of, of not doing well enough. It is, it is a situation where the blue states are the problem. Affluent liberals tend to be really good at showing up to the market. So. You heard him say it, right? This is not me, right? This is not conservative liberty Nick, right? Free market, private property rights guys saying the blue states are the problem. These are left-wing guys saying the blue states are the problem. And they point out the issues with the housing crisis, with income inequality, with ed education disparities, with, with all these things. Blue states are the problem. So why? Please explain to me. So why are we not having a broader discussion on hey, do these policies really work? Like, okay, the, the objectives might be noble, the objectives might be good, but do your policies, your method of implementing solutions to problems or challenges, do they achieve the desired end states? Because you cannot tell me that these blue states are implementing none of the policies that you like, 
if they aren't, well, then why do you keep voting for them? Because if you're saying they're the problems and they are implementing at least some of the policies you want, when presumably a lot of the red states, which you don't like, are not in instituting those policies, at what point do you question your solution, not just you know, the veracity to which somebody has carried it out? and talking about how they love equality. They're really good at putting signs in their lawn saying that all are welcome here. But by their actions, what they're actually saying is, yes, we believe in these ideals, just not in my backyard. We are not living our values. People who live in blue states, people who profess liberal values, you need to look in the mirror and, and need to understand that they are not taking the actions that are consistent with those values, not just incidentally, not just in small areas, but that some of the most important policy choices. We are denying people the opportunity to prosper and to thrive and to build better lives. And it is happening in places where Democrats control the levers of policy. All right, so that's it. Like I said, very well done video, and I think in many respects compelling. The problem is, is that, and this is the problem that I have with so many of these videos, is that it's it's not that they're not thoughtful, it's not that they're not bringing up important issues, it's not even that they're they're bringing up issues that we may disagree on with respect to the nature of the problem um, or the nature of the desired end state. It it ends up becoming a question of policy. Like, how do you how are you actually going to carry these things out? And if you have people in charge that are attempting on some level to carry them out. Because it's easy to say that, okay, well, Palo Alto, you know, the people of Palo Alto voted against this particular building project. But you can't tell me that California is not trying to carry out a litany of other issues, which Democrats all say that they care about. And if it's not achieving the desired end states, at what point do you reevaluate your policy? Because if, if you're just gonna keep coming back and saying, no, we, got, we just didn't do it hard enough, we just didn't do it pure enough, we just didn't do it you know, fast enough, Hard enough, long enough, whatever it is, right? I'm sorry, at some point, I'm going to come to the conclusion that the end state, the, the grand design, the grand objectives that you're referring to are not as important to you as the government mechanisms you want to use to achieve them. And if ultimately the primary way that you're going to address problems is going to be through government force and coercion at the expense of free markets, private property rights, individual liberty, personal choice, I'm going to have some, I got some questions both on a moral level, but as this video is pointed out, I get to make them on a practical level too, because in their words, not mine, blue states are the problem. I'm Nick Freitas with Making the Argument. I hope you found this, this video useful. Uh, leave us a comment. Let us know whether or not you like this sort of React videos. Again, one of our primary objectives here is to equip you to be able to make arguments, the sort of arguments that you see being made within the culture, so that when you're talking to friends, family, children, you know, your college student comes home for Thanksgiving, and they, they posit a question. We want to be able to equip you with the arguments that you need to have a good, productive, and civil conversation, which understands that there's a lot we agree on with respect to the problems. There's a lot we agree on with respect to the desired end states, but the devil is in the detail on how we get from one to the other. And we want to be able to foster the sort of community that allows for people to be able to pursue happiness, to be able to enjoy their liberties, and to do so in a way that creates the sort of productivity and wealth that you see in a society where people are free to work together in voluntary cooperation, not under the boot of government coercion. I'm Nick Freitas with Making the Argument. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next episode.
once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.